I bring you greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very thankful to be with you today. I trust that the Lord will bless us as we consider His holy word. I want to do something that may be a little bit unusual, uh, but you'll understand why as we do this. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Now, actually, my text for this morning is Psalm 135 and Psalm 136. And I want to read both of them, but I want to do so in a special way. I want to read Psalm 135 as it stands, but then I want to read Psalm 136 in the way that it was intended to be read, and that is as a responsive reading. Because you will notice that every verse in Psalm 136 has a refrain. Now, because we probably have different Bibles in front of us, and the different Bibles translate this differently, I want to ask you, so we can all do it together, to use these words. His, for his steadfast love endures forever. So when we come to Psalm 136, I'll read the first line, and then you will respond with those words, for his steadfast love endures forever, okay? That's how this was intended to be read. It was to be read in public worship antiphonally, that is responsively, where the leader would say one line and the congregation would repeat it over again. And it's very important that we do this this way. It'll all become clear to you, at least I hope it will become clear to you as we go forward. So if you are able to do so, I'd like to ask you to stand and listen while I read Psalm 135, and then we will responsively read Psalm 136. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And now join with me. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites. For his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed that the book of Psalms has been carefully structured? Or maybe you haven't. Sometimes Christians read it as simply a series of 150 inspired poems, and it is this. But I want to suggest to you that it is more than this. There is an arrangement and a logic to the order of the Psalms. In some cases, this is obvious. In others, it might take a little digging to recognize the arrangement. See, we ought to ask the question, why is this book, the book of Psalms, shaped the way that it is? Who organized it? And why is it organized in the way that we receive it? Well, we don't know exactly the answer to the who question, though we can offer some reasonable speculation. Psalm 126 is a psalm that is written about the return from the Babylonian exile, which means that we can date it fairly accurately to around 500 years before Christ. Including it in the Psalter as it stands indicates that the collection was made at that time, or perhaps even afterwards, even closer to the birth of our Lord. Some scholars have suggested that Ezra the scribe, 
who's active around 440 BC, might have been the one who collected the Psalms. Another possibility, and a good possibility, for which there is some at least traditional evidence, is that it was Nehemiah the governor. Either one of them was certainly capable of collecting and forming the shape of the book of Psalms. It certainly comes to us after Judah returned from exile in Babylon. But what about the organization question? The order of the Psalms is not chronological. If it were, Psalm 90 would probably be the first, a Psalm of Moses, the man of God, and Psalm 126, just mentioned, would probably be the last. Now, if we think about these two Psalms as chronological bookends, we can say that between them, the time lapse is about a thousand years. From Moses to the return from the exile is nearly a thousand years, a millennium. And yet both Psalm 90 and Psalm 126 are found in the second half of the book of Psalms. See, we must look elsewhere for an answer. It's not chronological. Now, while none of the books of the Bible that we have today were written with chapters and verses in the way that they are divided now, that was added afterwards for our convenience so that we can say, turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and quickly find it. That John didn't write the letter that way. The book of Chronicles wasn't written that way or any of the other books. But the Psalms, which are not chapters, it's not appropriate to call them chapters, are with some possible exceptions, separate poems or songs that are offered expressing the thoughts and the emotions of God's people. I'm sure as you've read through the book of Psalms in your devotions, you probably notice that it is divided up into five separate books. And this tells us that someone, maybe Ezra, maybe Nehemiah, maybe someone else, grouped them together into these five sections. Each of the five books has a specific theme and purpose. You may also have noticed in your reading that sometimes the Psalms are placed into what we might call clusters. These are groupings which have some kind of common element or theme such as, for example, those that are attributed to the sons of Korah, or the Psalms of Asaph, or the Songs of Ascents. Or maybe they have common themes such as the kingship of God, or perhaps you've noticed that the Hallelujah Psalms are frequently clustered together. Psalm 119 is virtually its own cluster, 22 stanzas, almost like individual poems, all extolling the greatness of God's Word. In fact, a very close study of the book of Psalms indicates that the entire book is filled with clusters, poems that share important themes. It was shaped very purposely and very carefully. Now our Psalms, Psalms 135 through 137, perfectly fit this model. If you notice in your Bible, Psalms 120 through 134 are the songs of ascents. Each of them are headed by that statement. These were psalms that were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem in obedience to the command of God to celebrate the great feasts of the Lord. 
After our psalm, Psalms 138 through 145, we find the last cluster of psalms that are specifically ascribed to King David, and those psalms lead to the spectacular conclusion of praise to God in the final five psalms. Psalms 137 through, sorry, 135 through 137 pick up some themes that are present in the Songs of Ascents, and they form a bridge to prepare us for the grand finale. And our task this morning is to think through this collection, I'm sorry, this connection, and learn from it. Now, did you notice, as we read just a few moments ago, that Psalm 135 and 136 are a very closely related pair. They refer to the same events, they share common themes, and they even use the same language, but still there is a difference between them. Each of them calls us to praise God, but with slight variations. 135 begins with a hallelujah. It's one of the hallelujah psalms. In fact, interestingly enough, this is the only psalm that uses the phrase hallelujah in the middle of the psalm. Every other time it occurs in the book of Psalms, it begins or ends the psalm. This is the only one that has it in the body of the psalm itself. It begins with a hallelujah, and then twice again in the same line repeats the Hebrew word hallelujah, praise. Psalm 136 also begins with a triple repetition, but now not hallelujah, it uses a different word. Our translation says, give thanks. Hallelujah is the Hebrew word praise. Here the Hebrew word is yada. Hallel and yada are similar, uh, I'm sorry, they're synonymous, but they have slightly different nuances. Hallel implies boasting or glorying in the Lord. And this is what the psalmist calls us to do in Psalm 135. Yada, which begins Psalm 136, speaks about declaration. In fact, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament usually renders this word with the equivalent of our English word, confess. Confess to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now think about this with me. When we give thanks, we confess our appreciation for someone's works. Imagine yourself in a circumstance like this. You're walking down the street, or you're in a shopping mall, or you're in a store, and a complete stranger approaches you and says, thank you, and then walks away. That's all that the stranger says to you. You'd probably be surprised, and perhaps you'd be baffled, and in your mind you'd be saying, thank you for what? What is this about? You see, thanks, when we offer thanks, we do this in response to something that someone has done, and really, it's a word of praise that's offered to that person. I might say, thank you for inviting me here today. I think actually I've already said that twice. That's the third time. Thank you for cooking this delicious food. Thank you for opening the door. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you refers to an action that someone has done. I am confessing to you my appreciation for what your action, for what you have done on my behalf. You see, to give thanks 
is to offer praise in response to an action. We are taught as children to say please and thank you. And there is always a context for these words. Please may I, you fill in the blank, thank you for, you can fill in the blank. This is courtesy, but it's appropriate and it's praise. Now, here's another evidence that these two inspired poems work so beautifully in concert. One scholar put it this way, praise is a confession or declaration of who God is and what God does. When you read these two Psalms together, they provide us with what we need to know in order to worship our God. In fact, we might summarize them like this. Psalm 135 praises God for who he is. We'll see in a moment that in nine different ways it emphasizes to, uh, emphasizes to us something about the person of God. But Psalm 136 calls us to be thankful, exalting him by confessing his great works, the things that he has done. So we have God in his person and God in his actions, and we have responses that we are to give to him in this way. Now, let's look at Psalm 135 briefly and notice what it tells us about who God is. As I just said, nine times in the first, well, uh, this is another set of nine. Nine times in the first six verses, he's called Lord. Your Bible probably writes this out in all uppercase or capital letters. That's a device that our translators use to help us know what the Hebrew word is behind those letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is God's covenant name, the name that by which he reveals himself and reveals himself only to his people. It's the name of being, I am who I am. It's the name by which he reveals himself to us and saying he's a God of faithfulness, a God of promise, a God of commitment, a God of covenant. The declaration that he is true being, that he has life in himself, that is that he is dependent on no one. He requires nothing from outside himself. God exists completely by himself. He knows himself thoroughly and fully. He has a perfect knowledge of who he is, and he can alone and uniquely know what it means to be God. This is what that word Lord intends to say to us. He is life himself. Listen to how our confession of faith says this. It's beautiful. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who alone hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, 
forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Hearing those words makes me want to bow down and worship him. And they only begin to scratch the surface of the greatness and the goodness of God. Because only he can know himself as he is. We can only know him as he reveals himself to us. And we will never have the full knowledge of God that he has of himself. God is not like us. He is a lone God. We remember what was probably, to, to use a modern term, the, the first memory verse of every Jewish child. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and might. This is intended to teach Israel and to teach us that our God is unique. And the psalm begins in this way with this name, Lord, in order to teach this to us. But we need to notice the eight other ways that he has presented to us. Nine times he's called Lord, but this is just the beginning of the descriptions of him. There are eight others. In verse 3 of Psalm 135, we are told that he is good. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's the only time it occurs outside of the beginning or end of the psalm, right there in verse 3. Hallelujah, for the Lord is good. He is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. I am that I am who is good. He is the very definition of goodness. And the call to God's people is to recognize this fact. Always, in every circumstance, whatever it might be, God is good. In verse 4, we notice his love. The psalmist uses the language of choosing Jacob for himself and choosing Israel as his own possession. And as we will see, this is the focus of Psalm 136. In verse 5, we are told that he is great. I know that the Lord, I know that Yahweh... Jehovah is great, meaning he is exalted. In the second line of verse 5, maybe you'll notice in your Bible the word Lord again, but now it's printed slightly differently, isn't it? It's not all in capital letters. It's actually in lowercase letters. That's because it's a different Hebrew word. It's the word Adonai. He is our master who is greater than any idol contending for worship. There is none like him. I know that the Lord is great, that our master, our Adonai, our king, is above all other gods. There may be idols that claim deity, that claim worship, that claim sovereignty in certain places, but none of them can be like our God. He alone is God. That's the point in saying that the Lord is great. Verses 6 and 7 turn our attention to his sovereignty. He does as he pleases on heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whether it's in heaven, in the world that we cannot see, the supernatural world, or on earth, the world that we can see, the world that we know, even in the seas and in the deeps, which are mysterious places to us. It's the Lord who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. We've experienced these things in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Storms, flash floods, lightning, thunder. 
God is the Lord over those things and sovereign over them. He's the king of all creation. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Whatever exists that is not God, whatever exists and whatever happens is a result of his powerful action. This is a claim to sovereignty. Sixthly, in verses 8 through 11, we read that he is the protector of Israel. He's a warrior who battles for the safety of his people. And we have this recitation of his mighty acts on behalf of his people. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, a reminder of the Exodus, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to the people of Israel. He's a protector and he's a warrior. And he does this on behalf of his people. So he conquers Pharaoh, the greatest perhaps human sovereign on earth at that time. He conquers these two kings on the east bank of the Jordan who held that ground against Israel. They would not have been able to come to the Jordan and cross over to the promised land if Sion and Og had been able to defeat them. But they could not because the Lord was with Israel. He is the one who defeated all of her foes. In verse 12, we see that when Israel entered into that promised land, the Lord was their provider. He gave them everything necessary for an abundant life and even more. You remember how the scripture says that they came to houses that they did not build, to vineyards that they did not plant, to gardens that they had not placed into the ground, and they were able to eat mature fruit and vegetables and to enjoy the fat of the land because God had prepared it for them and gave that to them. He was their provider. And all that they needed came from him. The next thing that we see about God in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 13, this is the eighth characteristic of God, is that he is eternal. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. What does that mean? Have you ever tried to describe eternity? I remember even as a child, trying to wrap my mind around the concept of eternity, knowing that I couldn't. Time is a created thing. It only exists because God made time to exist. God doesn't exist in time. He's not subject to time. The way that the psalmist expresses it to us here is that his glory, his renown, endures throughout all ages. It extends to every generation. We look around and we say, God is eternal. And then ninthly, we notice in verse 14 that the Lord is judge. That is, that he vindicates his people and he has compassion on his servants. And that is what a righteous judge does. If you ever go to court, you want a righteous judge to be seated at the bench. The Lord our God is a righteous judge who only and always does what is right and good for his people. And perhaps that's why hallelujah is 
inserted into the midst of this text. Psalm 135 is all about God, and yet there's still more. Verses 15 through 18, which contrast the Lord with the idols of the world, are almost identical, though not quite, to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. In fact, one, one commentator writing about Psalm 135 says that every verse contains the language of another portion of Scripture. We can find parallels to everything in Psalm 135 elsewhere. But these verses that we have before us right now, verses 15 through 18, were virt are virtually identical to some verses in Psalm 115. They are repeated here for us because they, are, they present to us a contrast with the religious practices of the nations. Idolatry versus faith. Idols are nothing. That's literally what the word idol means, nothing. And the Lord is everything. To use the language of the prophet Jeremiah, a craftsman may take a piece of wood, or he may take a stone, and carve out of that wood or that stone the image of a living thing. It may be beautiful, it may be precise, but you know what it is? It's a piece of wood or a piece of stone. That's all that it is. It's dead wood or dead stone. If it's wood, it's been cut off from its nourishment and without protection from human hands, it will rot away. And yet it's the idol of the nations. It's literally nothing. What a contrast that is to the eternal and living God. And for this reason, as the psalmist comes to the end, he calls upon the house of Israel and the house of Aaron and the house of Levi and all those who fear the Lord to sing his praise, to shout out his praise, to stand and bless the Lord and to say together, hallelujah. The psalm begins with those words, it ends with those words because it wants us to think about this person and say, he is worthy of all of our praise. Let us take our voices, let us lift them up and say, because God is all of these things, he is to be worshipped. He's not like the idols of the world. He's not like the objects of affection and worship that belong to the heathen, but rather he is the true and living God, and for that reason he deserves our praise. Hallelujah. It's a great song. And it prepares us for Psalm 136, which we have read. The theme of 136 is this. All that the Lord does is based in what he is because his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 begins with a threefold exhortation to give thanks to the Lord. He is the God of gods and he is the Lord of lords. And this is based on the most, again, on the most foundational truth of faith that is expressed in the Bible in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These sayings express this truth. Though other pretenders claim to be gods or lords, there is only one true God and only one Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. This is a triple command to know and love the one and only true God. 
And this call is supported by the repeated expression. You said it 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. What does this mean? You know, I had a unique experience that you didn't have. And that was to hear you say that phrase 26 times over. You could hear each other, but I could hear all of you. I could hear that phrase coming back to me in response to each statement that I made. What does it mean? Why has this psalm been written as it is? What were we saying when we recited those words? Well, Hebrew poetry is often much more compact and much simpler than English translations. Not that the English translations are bad, it's just that we can't express things the way, in the compact way, that the Hebrew is able to express it. In fact, in the original, if you were to look at this in the Hebrew, every single line of this psalm concludes with just three words. And if we were to translate them literally, they would say this. I'll, I'll read it to you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Eternally is love. Eternally is love. That's what it says. Now, that translation is good, for a steadfast love endures forever. I, I appreciate it. And it, it. But it's a little bit more cumbersome than simply eternally is love. That's what the psalmist is saying to us. Eternally is love. And these simple words point us to profound truths. First, there is the idea of his steadfast love, his chesed. This love, this word that is sometimes translated mercy or steadfast love, is the Old Testament equivalent for John's words that you know so well and you've already heard this morning. God is love. That's what this is about. God is love. The Hebrew word is used with a depth of fullness that a single English word cannot convey. And that's why our translations, if you look at the, the authorized version or the New King James Version or New American Standard or any of the others, they will differ because they're all trying to bring into English the profound nuances of this, these Hebrew words. When Moses made the second copy of the tablets of stone, the Lord instructed him to ascend Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 8, we read this. Again, we've already heard them today. Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. This must have been an amazing encounter. God comes down and meets with Moses. And what does he say? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds a lot like the paragraph from the confession that I read a little while ago. What did Moses do in response when the Lord reveals himself, though in a cloud, though obscurely, but says these words to Moses, 
What did Moses do? He bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped because God declared to him his goodness and his mercy. Steadfast love. God is love. The other word translated endures forever, or I suggested to you simply as an adverb, eternally, also tells us something very important. The word endures in our English translations is a supplied word. It's not in the original. Now, it accurately reflects what the psalmist wrote, but it also obscures the fullness of his words. Our English translations, his steadfast love endures forever, may cause us to think that this word refers to something that begins in time and continues without ceasing. But that's not the whole story. Rather, it is that God's love is like him eternal. And that is precisely what John intends when he says in chapter 4 of his first letter, God is love. Love is a way to describe God. He is everything that, that love is. When we repeat the words of this psalm 26 times, we are saying something truly wonderful. We are saying that the God of heaven and earth, the one true living God, described in so many different ways in Psalm 135, that this God is love in eternity and in space and time. When we again and again respond to the first line of each verse, we are saying, for all eternity and for all time, God is love. And not simply love as a concept, but love in reality. Love between the persons of the Trinity. Love expressed to creation. Undying, unending love to his people. We can say his steadfast love endures forever, or literally, eternally. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, is a parallel to the first three verses of Psalm 135, but in a slightly revised order. The psalmist takes the word good in 135.3 and places it at the front of 136, and then follows by contrasting the Lord with idols. Think about this. Verses 4 through 6, the first part of each uh, verse verses 4 through 6, describe what we might call general revelation. This refers to the fact that the created world around us discloses to us true things about God. He does powerful things. He does what are called great wonders in verse 4. He creates the heavens and he creates the earth. General revelation is something that is available to all people, everyone, everywhere, and at all times. And it is constantly surrounded by God's revelation of his being in power. This is in contrast to the local deities who in the mythology of the day were limited to certain places. There might be a god of the valley, or a god of a stream, or a god of the mountaintop. But these places could not testify to the idols. And when away from them, the idol was powerless and forgotten. The idol, the, the god of the valley, is only god in that valley. If you go to the next valley, that first god is not there. The psalmist is claiming that our god is everywhere. And we cannot escape from him and the testimony that he gives to us. 
Creation testifies to the one true God, not to one God among many other gods, but the one true God who is unique and special, and it calls for him to be worshipped. Verses 7 through 9 carry on this thought. And they speak about God's acts in providence. Every day and every night testifies to the universal presence and power of God. Not just yesterday, not just tomorrow, but every day, because he is always the same. You see, there's a real sense in which creation and providence, the ongoing actions of God, say to us, Hear, O peoples of the earth, wherever you live and whenever you live, there is one God. Bow down and worship him. Now, the psalmist very quickly moves from creation and providence to redemption when he refers to the exodus from Egypt. In the Old Testament, the exodus is redemption. It brings freedom to slaves, people who are subject to unrelenting toil, people who are in bondage and poverty and affliction. We, we ask the question, what hope do people in slavery have in themselves? They are powerless and they're often faced with despair and resignation. They say, there's no way out. But as these incidents are brought to the mind of the Israelites, they are to recall the fact that God rescued them, the Lord rescued them. Israel spent 400 years in Egypt. Throughout all those years, the Lord's steadfast love was present. At the beginning, when they went down and were able to enjoy all of the, the goods that Joseph stored up so that they might make their lives comfortable through the famine. And at the end, when there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and who oppressed the, the Israelites terribly. Human circumstances do not change the being of God. Now, while the events of the sojourn in Egypt and the Exodus are true history, they serve another purpose because they are a port portrait of our bondage to sin. It is alone the Lord who loves us and delivers us, redeems us only by his powerful hand. Verse 16 speaks about the wilderness wanderings. For 40 years, though they were being judged for their sin, the Lord was with his people and the Lord was good. And verses 18 through 21 summarize the final chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. The enemies of God's people, powerful foes who held the east bank of the Jordan River and would prevent Israel from crossing and reaching the promised land, were defeated by God's power. He provided land to slaves and he gave them abundant gifts. Once again, we see the language of slavery. Verse 23, he remembered us in our lowest state. Verse 24, he rescued us from our foes eternally, his love. Whatever the circumstance, God is there and God is with the people. And verse 26 summarizes it all. God is the only God and always, always manifests his love. But wait. Do you remember that I said that there was a trio of psalms bridging between the songs of ascents and the final collection of David's psalms? We've looked at two. What's the third in the trio? 
Now imagine that you've read these two wonderful Psalms and by faith you find yourself encouraged in the never-ending love of God. Your heart has been strengthened and you join that chorus of praise and say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then you continue reading. What do you see? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What is this? How can this fit with these other two psalms speaking of God's person and his greatness and his works? Is there some kind of dissonance here? What does Psalm 137 follow these other two psalms? What was Ezra or Nehemiah thinking when they put these together? Well, I want you to consider this. When the people of God think of the horror of another captivity, 70 years of slavery in Babylon, they need to remember that God is always the same. What was true of the early history of Israel is always true. Even in the darkest of times, eternally, his love, his steadfast love endures forever. If a composer were to write a musical piece for these three psalms, Psalm 135 would include martial rhythms. I can imagine the horns sounding out loudly as a, a, a triumphant praise to God of heaven and earth. Psalm 136 would repeat a beautiful melody 26 times over. And Psalm 137 would take these same themes and these same melodies and place them in a minor key and proceed because God's love never ends. It may have been in the wilderness wanderings. It may have been in four years of uh, difficulty in Egypt, maybe 70 years in Babylon, but it's still the same. Whether looking at the big picture of triumph or enduring the taunts of the heathen, God's steadfast love is eternal because God is eternal. He's always the same, unmovable in his being, his wisdom, and his power. Now, probably I need to say something about the end of Psalm 137 because this imagery of taking little ones and dashing them against the rock can cause difficulty in our minds. It's not what you probably think that it is. These are words that have to do with the end of the oppressive Babylonian Empire, especially the house of Babylon, the, the, the house of the emperor himself. Notice how verse 8 
of Psalm 137 uses the language of the daughter of Babylon. Well, the daughter of Babylon would be the queen. It would be, the, or the princess. And when verse 9 speaks about the babies, the infants being killed, it's speaking about bringing an end to the line of the Babylonians who have oppressed Israel. It's not, it's not um, Herod's evil of slaying all the infants in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, which forced Joseph to take he and, and uh, Mary to Egypt. That's not what's going on here. This is a cry of God's people to put an end to the horrible reign of Babylon. It does so in stark and striking terms, but that's what it is about. Because God is eternal. He's always the same. He's unmovable in his being and in his wisdom and in his power. But let's come back to think about this. What should we say in response to these psalms? Well, there's only one obvious answer. You've already said it 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. Or more simply, eternally, his love. These psalms teach us that thanksgiving is a duty we all owe to the true Lord of heaven and earth. Together, Psalm 135 and 136 call us to praise and to thanksgiving. The refrain that we have said so many times, his steadfast love endures forever, is not a mindless repetition. Rather, it is the primary teaching of both of these psalms. God's unchanging character is real, and his immutable love is eternal. And whatever our outward circumstances may be, whether they are good or they are bad, whether we are in weal or in woe, we must give thanks to him. For this, that is all that he does, is rooted in this eternal virtue of his being. God is good. So whatever the circumstances that we face, we as his people are called to give thanks to him. Eternally, his love. See, the world around us is full of testimonies and reminders of the being and the works of God. Creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these things point to his glory and they call us to worship. Creation itself is an awesome and amazing witness to the majesty of God. He rules over it in every way possible. If that is so, how much more is he able to rule over our lives? This is one reason why unbelief seeks to deny the activity of God in creation. Such actions are foolish denials of reality, similar to thinking that life is no more than a dream. Our God made the heavens and he made the earth, and this calls us to give thanks. But it's a reminder to us that the Lord often allows his people to endure sometimes extended periods of suffering and affliction. But he does this so that he might, we might turn our eyes to heaven. He's always full of love to us. Never does his favor diminish or retreat or suffer distraction. His chesed, his steadfast love endures forever. Remember Israel in Egypt for 400 years. And remember that God loved his people. The last thing that this psalm reminds us of is that because the Lord is always the same, the Lord always delivers his people from bondage. Because his love endures forever, he saves his people. 
The great gift is redemption that comes to us through his son. Egypt, though real and true in the experiences of the Israelites there are historical facts. Egypt stands in the Bible as a metaphor for slavery to sin. It describes us as we are naturally. As we come forth from the womb, we are sinners and we give ourselves happily to service to sin. The Passover, the sacrifice of blood being placed upon the lintel of the home, it points us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The journey after they were set free is a metaphor for this life and its temptations. And the promised land, Canaan, is a picture to us of heavenly rest. Now the reality is, many of us are on the path to that heavenly rest. But it may be that some of you are still living in Canaan. And though you are able to say the words, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, maybe you can't say them with meaning. Because in order to be able to confess His eternal love, you must know this God. And you must know Him through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you living in Egypt? Or have you been set free? So that in this pilgrimage, you can join your voice with all of the people of God who have ever lived and say, His steadfast love endures forever. See, the Lord does this for His people, churches and individuals who know periods of blessing and periods of struggle. But in all these times, he calls us to look to Him and trust Him. And these Psalms are reminders of what we must do throughout our lives. Let us remember this, eternally His love, or His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we, our words fall short of what you deserve from us. And yet we use the words of Scripture. We say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Because your steadfast love never fails, it endures forever. Because you are God, you never change. You remain the same. And we can trust in you. So Lord, we ask you to change us, write these words in our hearts. Help us to love you with all of our strength, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.